It was during the time of the Cold War. And communism and our own way of life were very much in people's minds, and he was speaking to that subject. And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. Okay, welcome back to The Left is Dead. I am your host, James Carey, here again with Nathan Sackett. Uh, Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm very excited to talk with these guys today. Yeah, we have some exciting guests tonight. Um, we have, you know, you want to introduce them, actually, and ask? Go ahead. Oh, Take man. over, pal. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, Jonathan Melrod. Uh, he had a book come out in 2022, an autobiography of his very busy life fighting times organizing on the front lines of the class war and uh he talks about his time in the 1960s and 70s um in political activism in revolutionary groups um it's difficult to summarize everything in the uaw in uh union organizing and we have uh tyler yes hello degare yeah tell uh yes so hello degare yes it's a french basque name <laughs> all right <laughs> who is a starbucks uh union organizer with uh, starbucks united yes that is right i am a uh, two and a half year partner with starbucks uh working as a barista out here in boston uh specifically brookline coolidge corner and uh yeah i am uh i've been organizing since uh god september of 21 i think which is wild to think about so yeah i'm, I'm really glad to be here thanks for having us Wow. And uh, John, uh, if you wanted to fill in anything I left out, I was anxious about summarizing this book. Um, no, you <laughs> did. A, to ask you. No, no, no worries. You did a, a fine job. Um, I usually sort of start out by saying why I wrote the book, um, which is in 2004, I was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and given only six months to a year to live at most. And I told the surgeon that that wasn't possible that I would die for me to die because I had a seven and 10 year old at home. And that night I looking over the precipice of life itself, I said to myself, if you turn red when you're embarrassed and if you get goosebumps when you're scared, that must mean your mind can control physiological changes. And I set out with a very de strong determination. I'm going to beat this disease. I'm going to be here to see my kids graduate. Now, the kids, on the other hand, they're not kids anymore. But at that time, they were befuddled. Dad, why did you go to college and not become a professional? Instead, you went into a factory and the chemicals you were exposed to are now killing you. So I decided that in the time that I had left, I was going to start writing a memoir so that I could leave them some understanding of the legacy and why I had been willing to do what I did, working on assembly lines and in tanneries, what have you. So that's, you know, a good way to get into it. Um, 
so when did you start organizing and i mean um what what industries have you been in you know nathan brought up the uaw uh what unions have you been a part of and what uh organize you know what organizing efforts you know would you say you play a part of and are you playing a role in the starbucks organizing now well i've been working with tyler um he can give you more of an explanation of that there's a lot of young people who've read my book fighting times and they've gotten in touch with me to ask me advice to ask me how to do certain things and you know to create a union to keep it democratic but Tyler should speak more to it because he's the one who recruited me to help him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's invaluable information, not only in John's book, which I've read and have taken a lot from, but in talking to the man himself, you know, there's uh, a real connection, I think, between us, not only as, as like personal friends, but also the intergenerational struggle of, of labor organizing. We have a lot to learn from each other. And honestly, John's advice and wisdom has been instrumental in sort of helping me look at things strategically and, and process the best ways to approach certain issues that come up or develop certain strategies that have been effective out here to really rally the masses and get more workers, you know, to unionize and, and sort of understand what it's all about. So I'm really grateful for John and, and you know, he and I talk semi-regularly and I think that there's a lot too on the horizon that we're working on and working together to build. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And it doesn't just stop with me and John. It's it's just sort of a a call out to say, look, anybody who has these connections or or maybe even doesn't should be going out of their way to work with the people in their communities, work with other organizers, past, present, and future to develop this cohesive strategy because as much as there are differences, especially technologically between the generational struggles, there are so many things that are the same, right? And um, in a lot of ways, a lot of things that have gotten more intense and and um, complicated over the last 50 plus years. So that's really, I would say, the nature of our relationship. And I'm, I'm really grateful to consider John a friend. I was struck, John, how you were excited. I mean, you read about the 1930s foundations of the UAW. You were excited to work at a plant that had the UAW and to participate in that. And, you know, this is in the early 1970s. You're reading about the 1930s. And now we're in the early 2020s. And I was wondering what you made of that. You're, you're in between the 1930s and the <laughs> 2020s. Um, could you speak to that, maybe? Yeah, that's really a funny question. Because the other day, I was on the phone with a younger person who had gotten in touch with me after reading the book. And they said, well, back in the old days, in the 70s, and I'm thinking old days is the 30s. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, you know, it was a lot looking back in history that did motivate me to do what I did. I really felt that we could go in to the unions and really make some changes, you know, deepen the democracy that had been taken away over the years. In my union, the UAW, we didn't used to be able to vote for our officers. And in 1983, I was a delegate to the convention and led a movement on the floor for what we called one member, one vote, which would allow the membership to vote for the president and the vice president, et cetera. And they outmaneuvered us and we lost the vote. Well, recently, 
when about 10 or 12 UAW leaders went to jail for bribery and misuse of funds, the uh, special master ordered a vote on whether or not people wanted the right to vote for officers. And it passed overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it feels like some of the work that we did in the old days, 73, 83, excuse me, you know, laid the groundwork for some very important changes that have been that have been taking place. Hmm. On that, I want to ask you and Tyler, I mean, one, Tyler, what questions did you have for John? And John, what questions do organizers today have for you? What what are they curious about? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I tend to ask a million questions of John all the time, but I would say that um, in this context, um, something I would ask John is, you know, what does he see as the um, similarities and differences in terms of organizing now versus back in the old days? Um, And also, what kind of advice would John have for people in sort of my uh, generation of, of class struggle to, you know, persevere and not lose sight of, because a lot of us are first time organizers in the labor movement, right? We have a lot of things that we don't know, or we think we know, but we may not actually understand. Um, and so someone like John is very valuable into sort of, uh, clarifying a lot of these things for us that we may not think about, but eventually become issues that we have to know how to work around. So that's really what I would ask him. And one of those was a really good question that Tyler asked me. Um, I forget the exact question, but it was something along the lines that, how do you keep this going? How do you keep the stamina to keep organizing? And I responded two ways. One is you can't stop organizing because there's an existential crisis right now with the planet. And Tyler and the Starbucks workers don't just organize for wages and hours and working conditions, but they're an intersectional union. And one of the issues they take up is the environment. So you can't stop because there won't be a world if you do. But I also explained that nothing happens overnight. It takes persistence and it takes patience. The first time I ran for union steward at the uh, American Motors auto assembly plant, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, I drove three other guys in my car and myself to the union hall to vote. And the next day when I got in, I was on my tiptoes trying to see the vote tally and I couldn't see it because my name was at the very bottom and only three people had voted me for me. So one of the guys I drove didn't even vote for me. So I, you know, that was like a sobering experience, you know, and it was, another probably eight years before I became elected chief steward and department chair and, you know, onto the executive board and the bargaining committee. So there's there's a lot of similarity in what the process that you have to go, go through is. For instance, one of the things Tyler and I talked about, he said on a different podcast, how important he has found democracy to be in building a new union. And my experience was in the early days of the unions, there was there was a very democratic institution, both on the shop floor and outside the shop floor. 
in my factory in 1933, they fired a chief steward for going around collecting money for some worker whose home had burned down. And when they fired him, the whole department sat down. And when the word got to the Racine plant and the Milwaukee plant, they sat down, which was the first sit down in auto before Ford in Detroit. And it was that sort of collective spirit and democracy on the shop floor that brought people together and taught them the power that they had. The power over production is a tremendous hammer <clears throat> able to get things from the company if you're being mistreated. And I think it might be helpful. Tyler can tell you about a 65 day strike that they had in the Boston area exactly over these type of issues. And, you know, they really were successful, Tyler. Why don't you talk about that a bit? Yeah, for sure. So um, for context out here in um, Boston, there's a store at 874 Commonwealth Avenue, which is technically in Brookline, but it's on a weird cusp between Brookline and Boston zoning ordinances. We don't need to get into that. Um, <clears throat> but long story short, um, the store went on strike because shortly after they won their union election, they had their manager replaced with someone who was not only anti-union, but very, uh, you know, anti-trans, anti-black, anti a lot of different issues that collectively on the shop floor, these people were saying, we're not going to stand for this. This is terrible. We don't want a bigoted prejudice manager, you know, changing the dynamic that we have here and making workers feel unsafe. So they took to striking and it was the first and longest indefinite strike uh, still to this day in um, our campaign's history, uh, 64 whole days. And the best way that we were able to keep it alive is not only solidarity with other unions in this context, the Teamsters, who are the delivery drivers for Starbucks, have it in their contract that they can refuse to cross the picket line at any time. So since we had a picket line, we said, well, Starbucks is obviously going to try to make deliveries at wacky hours, so we have to run a 24-hour picket line. Now, how in the world are we going to keep a picket line alive indefinitely? So the way in which we use democracy to further our goals was we created, you know, a Google form. There's technology is the way that things have made things a lot easier in some ways, um, where we basically put a call out to the community in, in tandem with like the, the Greater Boston Labor Council and other unions in our area um, to basically sign up to pick on, like to take on shifts. And so we oversaw the, uh, the Google form and, you know, adjusted for people's availability. And we were able to keep the picket line alive 24-7 for 64 whole days. And it would have been possible if we didn't have full participation from our community allies, from our fellow co-workers and the workers at 874 and other baristas in the area. Um, and it really was something incredible. It even got to the extent where Starbucks called in the Pinkertons, which I don't know if you've discussed on this podcast, but uh, a very long storied history with the Pinkertons who started off as the, you know, knee, knee breakers of the uh, union days back in the way, way back in the, the 1800s to early 1900s, and then went legit as a private security firm, which they currently run now, um, a multi-billion dollar industry, which Starbucks and many other uh, large corporations employ. Um, so it got to the extent where, you know, we were fighting diligently with all the community on our side. And uh, we ended up getting that manager out of the store. And um, yeah, the workers are much happier now and in a much better uh, much better place, but there's still a lot of fighting to be done. So that's just one way in which, uh, you know, the notions of 
democracy and, and community solidarity have been imperative um, in, in keeping our strike lines alive and in keeping our movement alive in general. Do you two think it's possibly beneficial that these unions are new unions and they aren't kind of weighed down by the bureaucracy of the old sort of, you know, the one the union boss is willing to work with the ruling class like you don't quite have that established yet. I mean, what is the state of organization in your area? Like how many stores are you, you know, working in or how many are you working with? And would do you think it's easier to do this without a sort of embedded bureaucracy already in place inside these unions? Yeah, it's actually funny you asked that question in particular because the way that John and I met was uh, in June of last year, we uh, were on the same panel. John was organizing a panel for Labor Notes, which is the national labor conference, which everybody flocks to out in Chicago. Um, and the notion, the, the subject, the topic of the panel that John was running, which I was on, was, uh, you know, Unions, do you keep them? Uh, you know, do you go with the unions of old or do you start your own? Um, what is the best way forward? And you know, I think that in our context for Starbucks workers, um, we are unionized with Workers United, which is an affiliate of the SEIU. So, Workers United itself represents over 86,000 workers, mostly garment and textile factory workers, um, but also a lot of like <clears throat> you know, college dining center workers and stuff like that. Um, so they're a relatively small union compared to the SCIU, which they're a part of, which has over 3 million. So in working with Workers United, there are many ways in which having those resources are beneficial, um, yet because of their relative size compared to our movement, which right now has 7,000 workers um, at 280 stores unionized, um, and in Massachusetts, we have 16 stores um, with about three or 400 workers unionized. Um, it's allowed us to have relative autonomy to kind of control how things are run in our region. And I think to your question, that's been imperative in our success. And one of the big appeals of our campaign, I think, is the rank and file leadership, which we've been able to procure and develop and maintain throughout this fight. So I think that our relative autonomy compared to the unions of old and the old school bureaucracy is exactly what makes us so malleable and successful. And I think it represents potentially a new wave or new era of labor organizing, breaking apart from the traditional large union bureaucrats that we've seen over the past, you know, 70 plus years. If I could give an example from uh, my experience and from fighting times with this exact question, I think it would be helpful to go through a sequence of events that occurred, which was one morning I came into work and there were gaggles of young people all over talking and they were upset. And I asked them what was going on. And they said the chief steward and I was department chair and steward, but not chief steward. He went up to Kathy, who was a steward who had run with me on our ticket, our slate, he told her she better stop kissing on end people, okay? And they were angry. These were whites and blacks who, you know, I heard one white guy said, I'm not my parents' generation, and I don't want that to go on here. So as department chairman, I put that on the agenda, and people said, oh, nobody goes to department meetings. There'll be three or four people who want to drink free beer. 
In fact, 80 people from the department showed up. A lot of African-American workers showed up who rarely had attended these meetings and really voiced their anger at the racism that was going on both in the shop on the floor and in the union. And, and it really pushed back against that chief steward so that he had to at least change his attitude toward people. I don't know what went on in his head, but in terms of dealing with people, he then dealt with them on a much more equal and fair basis. Um, you guys can tell me, I'd like to, if I can, just tell people that because we're on this podcast and a number of other podcasts, we've lowered the cost of the book by 40% to make it available to people. And to get it, they just go to my website, jonathanmelrod.com, and it's on the landing page with the code to order it at 40% off. We'll put a link for it too, so. We'll, Thank you. We'll make sure, I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. I want to do a reading group with it. If I could, <laughs> like, really. I mean, I mean, I, I had to skip through because I started reading the extended chapters on your website. And I was like, oh, no, I'm running out of time. I got to finish this book. <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoyed the this, this stuff on the website, the extended materials, the the FBI dossier. Um, yeah, we got to get this book out there more. I think it's great. You know. Well, I really appreciate that because the reaction has been similar to what you're what you're saying. I have a podcast on February 23rd sponsored by two of the independent publishing companies. And when I got I received an email the other day saying that, oh, C-SPAN books and history television want to cover the podcast and perhaps co-produce it. So getting the word out is, I appreciate what you're saying, and it's very important and very, um, you know, appreciative, I am, of encouraging people to buy it. Because most people have liked it. Most people have said, wow, it reads like a novel. It's a page turner. You know, it, it, it's fun and it's humorous. And I make fun of myself and I make fun of other people. And thanks for the encouragement. It probably doesn't uh, sell the book comparing it to Oscar Meringer's If You Don't Weaken, which is uh, almost a, it's a, almost a century old. It pro, people don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, but it reminded me of that book about another uh, socialist labor organizer. But <laughs> yeah, we got to get out. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because it provides such a perspective. Whereas you know, it seems that capital's nature has really changed since the 1970s and 80s. Obviously, with um, John, I, you talk a bit in the book about how unions sort of become a conservative organization trying to gain any, you know, any benefits they can as jobs leave. And how do you think it is now that capital is sort of much more fleeting, whereas, uh, you know, Tyler, uh, obviously Starbucks can just close a store or they can pull off a lot more shady. There's a lot more anti-union tools in the toolbox now, you know? So how do you think that that's sort of changed? And how do you think, you know, what have you guys learned from each other as far as this, like the nature of capital now, the fact that you've organized multiple stores, but the whole chain isn't organized is something different than say the UAW times, you know, what are some of the big differences you find now? John, do you want to, do you want to take a crack at that one first? No, go ahead. 
I mean, that's a, a really, really good question. And, you know, <clears throat> I think that as someone who's pretty well read on labor history, but also understands that, um, you know, like most things, uh, problems don't, unless you completely destroy it at the source, problems tend to complicate themselves and mask themselves, but grow in complexity so they become harder to kill. It's like, you know, union busting is a lot like cockroaches in that way. Um, and when I think about the struggles of, you know, the UAW and other large fights that were won back in the 60s and 70s, I think a lot about the material conditions and the sort of circumstances during that time that brought people together, right? There was uh, a massive uh, fight for racial justice and civil rights. There was a massive anti-war sentiment. Silent Spring had come out in like the late 60s, which I think, or maybe early 70s, which really kicked off a lot of environmental organizing as well. You had the second wave of the feminist movement really taking off. Um, gay liberation was a huge and budding um, movement as well after Stonewall in 69. Um, and there were just a lot of things converging at once. Now, fast forward to, you know, 60 years later, a lot of the same things are still happening in a similar context, specifically with, you know, police brutality, especially with um, Black Americans and um, the fight for still gay liberation, but specifically trans rights and, you know, equity. Um, and then, of course, the existential threat of climate change has only gotten worse, um, especially with the, the growing of the neoliberal establishment ruling class. Um, and corporations, I think, have resorted to more tactics that have been able to divide people based on the material conditions that they're facing now. 50, 60 years ago, rents relative to wages were, you know, much more manageable. They weren't fair still, but, you know, I think that as economic and wealth inequality has continued to grow, people's day-to-day -day needs have gotten even more dire. Um, and that goes double for things like, you know, healthcare and, and stuff like that. And so when we're looking at how Starbucks and other corporations are busting unions, um, they use the, um, the catching flies with honey method and the, you know, catching flies with vinegar method where they try to scare us first. And once they realize they can't scare us all the way, then they, they try to start pinpointing and sweethearting different areas, you know, raising wages, giving benefits like credit card tipping, but withholding them from union stores and then telling the non-unionized workers, well, hey, you don't want to unionize here. They don't have credit card tipping. And so everything becomes much more dire when broken down into, you know, the context of material conditions. So I think that we are similarly on the precipice of a massive cultural revolution, much like what was happening in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I think the goal of our movement is to, as John points out with intersectionality, really connect and meet the times that we're living in and show that labor rights and the fight for economic equality is one that touches all of us, both domestically and abroad, and one that we need to rally around with the idea that the war machine and corporations and the state all serve the same interests of the wealthy. So it's the messaging and the ability to capture people that is really, really important here. And I think a growing issue that I'm recognizing is the bubbles that are created on social media actually make it a little more difficult to hit audiences that aren't already paying attention to the labor struggle or other social justice issues. So our big question right now is, 
how do we pop that bubble? How do we bridge those gaps and make it so that the average customer that goes into Starbucks on a given day knows what a union is, knows what Starbucks Workers United is, and knows what we're fighting for? Because if we can get enough people to have that understanding and that sentimental connection with the workers in that way for their fight, um, I think that is truly the way in which we will change the cultural like you know path that we're on and will help people see the nexus between something like baristas fighting for a living wage and climate justice, racial justice, et cetera. Um, but if we remain divided on those issues, then we run the risk of not being able to truly tackle the root causes of all this inequality. Um, especially in the short time frame that we seem to have with the threat of climate justice uh, or the threat of, you know, extinction, quite frankly, um, on, on, the, on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, I think one other huge component of this is that education is so important. I mean, that's why I think the podcasts that are developing really are going to play a role. Uh, you know, we didn't have the Internet, so our education was putting out flyers in front of the plant gates, handing them out to everyone who came into work and printing them ourselves on a mimeograph machine. But we, we stuck with the education component and we, we were asked to come to assist a, a black organization in Tupelo, Mississippi, where the Klan had been reactivated in around the late 70s. So we put out a flyer at the plant to everybody, all 8,000 workers, and most of them were white workers, but we wanted to be straightforward and say, this is what the Klan, this is how they divide us. This is how they terrorize people. This is how they're anti-union, et cetera. So we got down, we had a busload of us to go to Tupelo, Mississippi, and we pulled up in front of the Tupelo Police Department and out marched 20 white-robed, pointy-hooded Klansmen with axe handles and 38s in their pocket, and they were the police. So the police were the Klan, the Klan were the police. And, I mean, it was pretty shocking to me, being from up north, that that situation could exist. Um, I think that our march was helpful because we later heard that the Klan had become less active and less out in front <clears throat> in public. But when we came back, I was sitting in a bar after work and I felt something sticking into my stomach. And I looked down and it was uh, a guy at a 38. And he said to me, he said, I'm Dead-Eye Di Marino. And you're that Fighting Times commie Jew. And I don't like what you guys print. I said, damn, this is going to be a tough one to get out of. And I ordered a round of double shots. And then I ordered another round of double shots. And we're talking and I'm trying to explain to him, look, this is what we stand for. You know, we've been active in helping your department because you've been losing people and the, the company's been forcing you to work harder. So but we, we stand together on these things. And we kept drinking. About three hours later, you know, he's hugging me and saying, you're my union brother. I'm always going to support you. So, you know, I was offended when Hillary Clinton used the 
terminology of a basket of deplorables because I honestly believe that you could change most people's minds. Not everyone, but most people, if you approach them from where they are in their day-to-day lives, they, they have open minds. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, that's definitely, you guys are all good comparisons. I mean, that is, um, you know, Tyler, I, you make a good point that it is a weird crux, like a strange, like influx of intersectional problems, all failing to be resolved by the Democratic Party, obviously, you know, right. um, being absorbed by them, maybe, but failing to be resolved, obviously, and they can't offer, and no one can offer any real solutions. Um, and, you know, it's you make another good point too that the capital has become much more complicated much like the state you know as much as i would have supported say a bernie sanders presidency there's nothing there is no state apparatus to just grab the neck of and take control of and have control of this whole system you know um and we talked a little bit earlier about technology how would you say technology has kind of changed the game of organizing and like you said starbucks withholds technology like the credit card tipping and things like that you know um would you say that is where a lot of the sort of struggle plays out now is that I, I'm assuming there's a lot more monitoring. We know about Amazon's like Twitter bots saying, you know, I don't have to pee in a bottle or whatever. So would you say <laughs> yeah. that's where a lot of more things, where a lot more things play out now? Or I mean, what are the still like physical, you know, you say they try and do deliveries at strange hours and things like that. What are some of the, the traditional tactics you still see in union busting? And what are some of the more like unconventional ones now that it's tech companies trying to bust up unions and things like that. Right. Well, this is such a uh, prescient question, not only for the time we're in, but for literally an issue that we just kind of uh, are dealing with right now. Um, So to speak to that, you know, the, the worker handbooks of old have been, you know, often manipulated and utilized by the corporation to sort of perpetuate their ends and, and remove sort of some of the liability and also put some thinly veiled threats in there to discourage people from organizing. Now, for us at Starbucks, <clears throat> our partner handbook is something that um, you know we're all supposed to read as we're getting hired and onboarded. Um, it kind of lays out everything that we need to know. And it's something that we've used, at least with union organizing, to hold the company accountable to their quote-unquote missions and values. Um, Now, what's interesting, and this specifically goes to the technological component, is that recently Starbucks said that that they're putting out a digital-only partner handbook. Of course, they're probably making some claim that it's like sustainable, less paper or whatever. However, not only did they change the language in the handbook to be much more, you know, less thinly veiled, shall we say, about, um, you know, the power that they wield over workers – But they also, in making it digital only, have made it much more difficult for workers in practice to actually refer back to their resources. Um, And I say that because the agreement now that new hires are supposed to commit to is that they will, they promise to review the handbook sometime in the, you know, near future um, before being like hired. But they sign on the dotted line without having looked over the handbook once, and there's nothing to hold them accountable. However, Starbucks can change the language of the handbook, especially since it's digitized, and really try to leave no footprint of the change that they've made. But if someone, you know, 
violates a policy that was fine on Tuesday, but then they changed it on Wednesday and then violated that new policy on Thursday, then that worker can still be held accountable without having any real consent or knowledge as to what the parameters of their rights as workers are um, based on the handbook. And so that's just one of the many ways in which Starbucks has weaponized technology. Yeah, you mentioned the credit card tips. That's another way since a lot of people use um, the app or credit cards to pay for you know goods at Starbucks and therefore tip a lot more with cards than cash. That's kind of commonplace for any business at this point. Um, but on top of that, you know, some of the more traditional tactics they've tried to utilize, at least early in the campaign, um, listening sessions and what you know, what we know as captive audience meetings, trying to talk to workers about the negative sides of the union while it's trying to carefully skirt labor laws, um, which I think they quickly saw was ineffective because all we would do was like get a hold of those paper copies, edit them, and send them to the next uh, store that had a meeting. And then by the time they got to that store, the workers were already well prepared to tear them all, all apart. Um, but they're still you, you, they're still utilizing some of those tactics, um, and they've also been using the managers, um, which in many stores is kind of like the anchor of the store, especially if they like the managers, to sort of you know be very kind and and lean on the relationship they have with their workers to discourage unionization and to almost make it feel like we don't want to unionize our store because we really like manager X. And I think the sort of manipulative tactics are probably similar to things that uh, John and, and people before and after him have also experienced. Um, but yeah, the weaponization of technology has been really interesting, especially when it comes to the massive reach that Starbucks has as a corporation to just put out propaganda, you know, on Twitter, on Instagram, on, you know, whatever email chains they have for customers and in the app to essentially drown out any um, discontent that workers are expressing. Um, and so that's been a really interesting weaponization. And a lot of their issues also we have to fight in the boardroom, you know? Um, and the best part of technology in this context is we've been able to have workers around the country submit unfair labor practice claims because we're all able to be connected over Zoom and to sort of streamline that process. And if not for the technology that we currently have, it would be a much more slower and less cohesive um, task to maintain. So a lot of benefits with technology, a lot of interesting uses and weaponizations of technology. Um, and then, of course, the the age-old tactics are still um, what they're running with in other instances, like the Pinkertons, yeah, for example. I, yeah, I mean, I'd like to answer it. I thought, I think it was very a very good question, James, because whereas new technology can be used in a very anti-worker way. It's basically the same struggle that we fought in the 70s. When we were on the assembly line, they came around and they notified us that we'd be doing three more cars an hour. And that, you know, if you've ever worked on an assembly line, it's pretty rough humping that line eight hours, putting in the same six bolts all day long. It's not very invigorating or very conducive to much, you know, interesting thought. But they came around and they said, three more cars an hour. And we said, we can't do that. We just, we're not <clears> keeping <throat> up as it is. Well, now what they're able, and, and then they would, we would challenge them. We would work to, at the pace that was normal and we wouldn't get our job done. And they bring in a time study man 
with a stopwatch, clock us, and we won. They had to add workers to the assembly line and take work off of those people that had been assigned more work. Now, in today's technology, from the people I've talked to at Amazon, they've got this really down to a science. I mean, they have it worked out so that if two Amazon workers are working in close proximity, which would be a natural bonding experience where you could talk to each other, they have them moving at separate times so that they don't interact, their paths don't cross. So it's speed up, because they're very attuned to how much work people are turning out. It's speed up, but they're able to use technology to hide or to mask that speed up because it's done in such a different way with technology controlling the job that you do. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of that, like Amazon and gig workers, especially where you don't even know who your coworker is anymore half the time, you know, which is a really wild concept to think of is you can be sitting in a car next to what is essentially another cab driver, but you have no clue, you know, <laughs> and I, I think I, one other question I'd have on just kind of sort of parallels between the time, you know, both you guys times and now, like, what are some of the, uh, John, what are some of the parallels you see between like the ride, the resurgence of white supremacy after the civil rights movement and under like the Southern strategy and things like that? What are some of the parallels you see to now with the obviously a giant resurgence in white supremacy, you know, and full-blown fascism at this point, people have forgotten Nazis are bad, which is a wild concept for us. So what are some of the, you know, similarities you kind of see now? Well, that is pretty shocking that people don't see Nazis as bad. I mean, you're really getting down to the bottom when that's what people are thinking or saying. Um, but, you know, there, there was, I joined the civil rights movement when I was 15, 1965. And in 64, three young workers who had been registering blacks to vote were arrested and then later released into the custody of the Klan. Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodwin was their names. And the Klan proceeded to take them to a bog and kill them. And later, many, many years later, there's a movie on it, you know, where they go through the forensics of finding the bodies and proving that the Klan did it. But it was, but we, you know, what we were doing was sending out thousands of letters because there weren't any emails around the country explaining, look, this is denying U.S. citizens their right to vote if they can't register, if they, if they have to count how many jelly beans are in a jar to pass the registration test at the poll. So we're seeing that same phenomena exactly in these states that have made it harder and harder for African-American people to register to vote. And I, but I think the answer is the same. We have to organize, we have to mobilize people, and we have to educate people. You know, racism is nothing new. You know, anti-Semitism is nothing new. It's just rearing its ugly head in a much more public way. 
that uh, yeah we definitely saw you know the 30s organization was plagued by fascist organizers obviously you know there was the shop preachers and everything like that who would come in and the sort of pentecostals from down south would come in and do their snake handling and things like that on the shop floor and um you see a lot of that stuff now it's there is this weird and it's another one it seems to run parallel as you live through the like the, the rise of this evangelical political movement which is now clearly the dominant movement on the right you know um what do you think you know is there a way nathan and i talk about religion quite a bit honestly so i i, I don't know is there some way that not just religious people is there a way that you can recommend that say unions or organizers in general working class organizers in general can open up to more people you know uh tyler you talked about say you know bridging some gaps with the people you don't reach like what are some of the strategies that going forward that we can learn from both you know modern organizing and previous organizing to sort of reach out you know i i talk about this shop floor preachers because the uaw had preachers to compete with them right you know they use the same weapons that the bosses were using so i wonder what are some of the tools you know that you guys have now and what are some of the tools from the past that seem to be working really well uh, obviously tyler talked about technology but what else well you know one example that really comes to mind and you seem to know your history pretty well was father coughlin who was a uh, yeah i'm from detroit <laughs> oh okay if you're from detroit you know you know better than i do who father coughlin was you know he was an evangelical racist, anti-union, pro-Nazi bigot. And he was funded by Henry Ford. And to counter him, the union had to do a lot of work with their membership to explain and win them to understand why his evangelical, evangelical views funded by Henry Ford were really coming down to anti-union views. Um, so it's been through history that that's existed. And, you know, again, I, I still believe that we can get to people, you know, if they listen to this podcast, I believe they'll go away with a different view of the world. If they read Fighting Times, I believe they'll go away with a different view of the world. Um, so, you know, it's it's similar to the past, yet it's become in some ways because of the internet, much more virulent, you know, that people will post anything without any restraint. Um, Tyler, do you got anything on it? I mean, I absolutely do. I um, I wasn't sure how uh, into the weeds, you know, to get with this, but I definitely have a lot of thoughts as far as like the um, the connection between fascism, white supremacy, and capitalism. Um, I don't know how much, you know, we want to deep dive into it, but I, you know, it's always a subject that I'm very uh, passionate. Oh, feel free. We're leftists here. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Well, then, I mean, obviously I don't have to tell you, but it, it is an important narrative that, um, you know, fascism and capitalism um, kind of rely on each other. Right. And in this context, <clears throat> what I mean by that is, you know, true socialism and true worker solidarity and, and true proletarian revolutions, working class movements, whatever you want to call them, that truly relies on unifying all workers. It's an international sort of solidarity building, and it doesn't work if all workers aren't working together, right? 
And racism and economics go all the way back, I mean, you know, prior even potentially to, to colonization, but we know that race was generated and utilized to perpetuate the logic of chattel slavery. Um, and it was utilized for, you know, the triangular slave trade and to basically take free and exploited labor and kidnap African people. Um, and then eventually as well, like they tried it with native people, they've utilized it in different ways with uh, the prison industrial complex, with the military, and obviously with um, a lot of immigration programs as well, um, to utilize and divide um, workers based on race, based on citizenship, etc. And each chain and each rung of oppression has its own different incentives from corporations and the wealthy to workers to further exploit those beneath them. And so if you don't build a strong intersectional movement of solidarity to unify all workers, then it falls apart. Now, that's you know true socialism. When we talk about fascism, which in this context, um, the, the reason I say it's inherently connected to capitalism is because Whenever you have a, a state apparatus or people making decisions, right, the 1%, the 99%, whenever you have a small minority of wealthy people making decisions with your tax dollars and with your lives that are contrary to the good of the majority and of the working class, then there's no way to truly sustain that without suppression. And fascism works in the sense that you create different boogeymen and different targets that immobilize people who otherwise would be in solidarity with workers. In this context, white men, I think, are a good um, example to tie in with white supremacy. Um, you know, you create a, a bunch of unstable economic conditions. You cry foul about the rise of racial equity, which you know, we still see that materially there has not been a uh, a realization of racial equity in this country. In fact, far from it. Um, but you give people, you give white men these insecurities about losing their identities, losing their status in this world, and then draw juxtapositions to make them hate the people that they should be working with. And the rise of fascism incentivizes powerful leaders to basically carry out the bidding of the ruling class while the masses fight amongst themselves and fall into, you know, essentially a new civil war. And that's exactly what we're on the precipice on. I think that the antidote of, for that is, of course, theoretically true socialism, right? Truly building intersectional labor solidarity. But to be practical as far as what we need to do right now, we need to be bold and loud and reject anything that, you know, shows itself, as Malcolm X would say, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And, you know, look no further than the Democratic Party for that. And as you alluded to earlier, there's been a co-optation of identity, but there has been no substantive change or policy that they have truly put forth. And as we saw with the rail labor strike, when it comes to class solidarity and siding with workers, they will choose the ruling class every time because they're the quote unquote socially progressive part of the single party ruling class that we are currently seeing, which is run by the wealthy. And they all support the war machine, which perpetuates, you know, capitalism abroad through imperialism and colonization. And that is the way that they weaponize control over the masses. 
and, you know, rely on everybody else fighting each other to continue hoarding wealth while the planet dies. So the way that we combat this, the way that we combat fascism, these, you know, weird anti-gay white supremacists showing up at drag brunches with guns, we need to genuinely stop relying on performative measures and propping up politicians, stop funding these big democratic campaigns, and we need to collectively organize our workers and take bold, decisive actions. Call it what it is. Be explicit and make them scared. Genuine fear and a genuine course of action to fight back against these cowardly fascists and capitalists there are far more of us than there are of them. And it's time that we start acting like it. And that means putting your money where your mouth is and your actions speaking even louder than your words. And quite frankly, without saying too much that would potentially get me in trouble on the FCC airways, um, we need to militarize ourselves and become more active and pragmatic in fighting this blatantly because we've coded it with sweet language all along this entire time and have conceded so much to the Democratic Party who has not served us. And the only people who can liberate ourselves are ourselves. We are the only people who can fight for that. And the only way that we can get that is through true working class solidarity. Amen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so many like, you know, now the more I think of it, there's so many direct like parallels. There's the rise of this religious, you know, this insane religious great awakening essentially whether you know whether they call it that in the way they want or not there is um these right-wing forces kind of converging there is a democratic party which obama admitted was a reagan revolution party at this point <laughs> which is now you know breaking essentially essential infrastructure strikes like the railroad workers or the air traffic controllers whichever it may be you know we're seeing similar things the breaking of teachers unions under obama um you're just seeing two Republican parties now. So yeah, it's it's great that you put it in context that yeah, this is one unified ruling class. There may be different factions of capital, whether it's extraction or finance, but now you're even seeing the guys who made their wage on finance capital of the 1980s, they're losing their position because right. it's, the globalized economy has no place for them either. And whereas the 70s, it was the industrialized working class that was losing their position. But there is a lot of parallels. So yeah, I mean, there... I agree with you guys. I'm glad you guys met, honestly, because this is a powerful exchange to have for like these two generations. Because like the sensu the material conditions as described are so much similar the more we talk about them. And I wish I would have said earlier when talking about like technology, I I only realized after the fact that one of the biggest glaring differences that my generation is currently seeing is the gig economy. The gig economy is not only fighting to erode workers' rights by, you know, the Uber, Lyft, independent contractor argument, but it's also creating it so that, you know, a lot of my coworkers have two or three jobs and they're so tired and focused on just making enough to get by that they don't have the wherewithal, the energy or the, the real ability to take time to organize, you know? So that I think is such a, a monumental hurdle to get over. Um, and that's why, like out here specifically, we um, we're in contact and work closely with um, the folks who are fighting for um, worker rights and, and drivers' rights through the Uber Lyft campaign. Um, and you know, fortunately, out here in Massachusetts, they were successful in killing the uh, independent contractor bill that would have made uh, Uber drivers defined as independent contractors. But you know, they're just going to try to ram it through legislatively in the future. 
And I'm from California initially, so I already saw that happen with um, Prop 20 or Prop 22. And, you know, same thing with even if we get progressive legislation like the fast food worker bill in California, they're just going to tie it up in, in litigation and try to destroy it that way. And so, again, the, the institutions won't save us. The, the politicians won't save us. It is up to us to save ourselves. And, you know, it's that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, the institutions have sold off their responsibility. I mean, we're living in the times of the Iron Lady. There's no society. Exactly. Well, that's what I want to ask you guys too. Is like, what is the left is dead? Like, how do you? How would you articulate in like you know? How would you describe what that sentiment means to you? Like, why did you name your podcast that? Eh, ironic. You know, um, I think that there is a coalition that assembled out of say the sixties in the academic circles that is the you know say whether it's like the weather underground members who are now harvard professors and things like that there's a class of people who went obama himself is a a child of this sort of cultural you know social revolution that didn't really bring any material gains to any of the classes it claimed to represent so i think what it is now is like the idea of a cultural left is irrelevant because it is not cultural it is class-based and whether it's you know, based on your race or your sexual identification, however you're divided, as you said earlier, you know, you made your own point. Like this is a class divided system. And as you both brought up, these are methods to divide us. John talks about being down south of the clan with ax handles Um, up here. You know, they were represented by uh, the guy who became the actual executive for the county. He represented the clan in anti-busing suits up here back in the 70s. So, the situation is kind of similar. And now we see similar things here in Michigan where we have like these cranks <clears throat> and things like that. And I think that the cultural left, as far as the Democrats go, obviously is not equipped to do anything about it because the the, the gains have to be material. You know, people have to feel something. Politics, even at the most base level of a, a democratic republic or whatever you want to call it, a liberal republic, is you have to give people something. And if you don't give them anything besides representation or imagery and symbols, like it's not worth anything. You know, perhaps the best example of that recently was the railroad workers, because the railroad workers were basically asking for five sick days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Obama, you know, the, the so-called union president set up a, a committee to create a contract. And Regardless of the fact that the seven major railroad companies made $21 billion in profits in the last nine months when the railroad workers were fighting for a better contract, regardless of the fact that the corporate executives who run the railroads make an average of $20 million each, they came up with a contract out of Congress that didn't include sick days. And there was one guy. His name was Aaron Hills, and he had a doctor's appointment, but he got he became worried that he'd be disciplined. So he missed the doctor's appointment, and a week later, he was dead from a heart attack. You know, that's why my book is called Class War, because that is a class war when you can't even have the right to be paid to take off to see a doctor when you have a heart condition. And that's what we're fighting about. And th- those are what the conditions are. We're approaching the hour, but maybe on that note about the railroad workers, James, uh, if I could run, 
run. Yeah, I just let me say, I accidentally, I accidentally muted Tyler. I just wanted to know he can <laughs> unmute himself. I, he was just kind of rustling around, and I accidentally muted him. <laughs> but uh, real quick, uh, John, I heard you say something interesting in your interview on Lean to the Left on YouTube. Uh, you, you cited a reviewer who said that your book, Fighting Times, uh, what didn't have much about your personal life, which I thought was strange for you to say because it's such a personal book through your activism, through your fighting. And in connection to the railroad workers, they're having to fight to have a personal life in order to see their family. And it seems like they're railway companies. They want bachelors. They want to return to the early 20th century where you have disposable migrant workers and then you don't have to deal with them after a couple of years. They just get burnt out. Amazon's doing the same thing. So I want to ask you about like, do we have to fight to have a personal life? And what is it like being a labor organizer where your personal life is this public in a certain way with your fellow worker? Well, that's really an interesting question because one of the reviewers of my book wrote a very positive review of it. But then he said, but John Melrod doesn't seem to describe a personal life. Maybe his personal life was his political life. And for a long period of time, that was true. I mean, that we were coming out of the Vietnam War and what had happened and the impact of so many dead veterans and so many, you know, maimed and, you know, napalmed Vietnamese. We became so convicted, you know, so deeply involved in the movement that it did become our lives. Now, luckily, at a certain point, I had children. So I do have two sons. But, you know, it's, 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 it's I mean, if you're going to try and change things, it takes a lot of time. It's, it's a full-time job. I think the benefit is, you know, that you may not see the, all the, you know, rewards of it. But again, having kids is a, a strange thing because it's, there's another generation coming that has the, you know, this is a sort of historical cycle that goes on between the left and, you know, the forces of capital at this point, whether it was, it might've been different modes of production in the past, but it's capital now. And this is a sort of struggle that always continues, whether it's peasant revolts in the 1200s or, you know, organizing now. And I think it's, it's interesting that <clears throat> I am big on history because I think there's something to learn from every period. And, you know, whether it's the thirties, when again, fascist organizing is at its peak and there are fascist leaders in Europe who are, you know, calling out to these people. We see similar things now. We see a lot of similar situations. And I think it's, it's been a good conversation. I mean, Nathan, you can go ahead and ask any question you have to wrap up. But yeah, this has been great, you guys. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, well, we I really, really enjoyed appreciate... talking about these parallels. Yeah, it's been very yeah. interesting. I mean, we really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, you know, you guys are great guys and have great politics. So this is a pleasurable discussion. Absolutely. You know, and Nathan, if you ever do wanna have a book group, I can sell you the books that I get very cheaply just to enable you to have a book group. So you just let me know if, if I'll that's buy something. them full price. I can afford it. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it. there are 40% off. So <laughs> yeah, just go right. to my website. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'll let you know if I start a book club and see if you have any input about it. But yeah, another group actually did 30 people down in North Carolina let me know that it was the book they were all reading, which was pretty exciting. Good. Good. I mean, it, it reminds me of like labor anthologies like Rank and File, which came out a couple of years ago, uh, which covers people from the 1940s to the 1980s. Uh, it's, it's stuff like that. It's just great reading. Yeah. 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 Thank you both for your time. Um, it was a great interview and we will put links to uh, Tyler. Did you have anything you wanted to link to here in the uh, show notes or? Um, I think, you know, anyway, people can support your union or what? Yeah, I mean, if there's anybody out here listening who's a Starbucks barista, um, I would recommend going to uh, starbucksworkersunited.org. Uh, um, we basically have a, a rundown of everything, you know, from a newsletter to get updates on the campaign um, to if you want to organize your store and get in contact, you, there's a little intake form that you can fill out and somebody from a region will get that email and reach out to you immediately. Um, and I have a list of uh, other links if you want me to sh- uh, share that via email if you're interested. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many ways that like as a supporter of the movement, you can get involved locally um, and get in contact with baristas in your region um, and even going so far as to adopt a store um, to, you know, further provide material and foundational support and advice for workers who, quite frankly, like me and John, could definitely use the wisdom and uh, sort of knowledge that a lot of people have um, at their disposal. So that's I always like to say that, you know, um, corporations have the control of capital currently, but we have the masses on our side and we have so much more knowledge and ability with people power. Um, And I think that that's something that we can really utilize to leverage our power as workers. So yeah, that's please get involved if you're interested. Begrudging as I am, this is Trotsky's army of engineers, right? This is what was necessary to fucking remove the system that was in place. So (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you guys again. And we will, uh, Hey, maybe we'll talk again. This has been great. And you know, we'd love to, we'd love to. All right. We'd love to. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. Workers from your slumber arise. You prisoners of want. That's right. For reason in revolt. Now thunder chains of hatred, greed and fear. Away with all your superstitions. Survive masses arise, arise. Oh, I think I'm probably getting both um edited tomorrow night or something like that and put them up. I'm glad you recorded this for the public record that we do have a working archive. Yeah. We will yeah. <laughs> um no, that was that was a good conversation. It was really interesting. It was, you know, um, it was a hit and miss with like union organizers because you never know. But like, I clearly like these are people who put the thought and time into like why they're organizing, and obviously they have like a larger political goal, which is always interesting because sometimes like the goals of union employees can seem very like narrow. You know, as we kind of talked about before we even started recording, like the holding on to a nickel an hour or whatever like that. So it's interesting to see a sort of proactive. And not only that, but like, as you know, as Tyler got into it, like a wider political understanding of everything. That's what I like about like the the Maoist influenced, you know, union organizers in the 60s and 70s is that they they look at the little issues that to us look little. I say little in quotes, but they're actually really big issues, cultural issues of like racist slights like Melrod was talking about. Right. It's a big deal. Um 
an Amazon warehouse not letting Muslims take a break to pray is a big deal. It may not, me as some white dude, may not a white, you know, post-Christian dude may not get that, but it's a big deal. And the, the, some of the Maoists in America kind of picked that up. They put it in the meditation cubes, so I don't see the problem. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, it is. Um, there's a lot of things. That it, it's strange, you know, as we got into it more, it was like there's a lot of parallels, but there's also as different as everything seems. There's a lot of parallels. Like the more I look at it, the 70s where it's like, again, what like I said, there's no society. It's all being destroyed. Like, you know, it. it's just we're seeing... I guess it's funny now because it's like you're seeing the liberals be the the voice of like super privatization and austerity. Mm-hmm. And Melrod sees that kind of in the early 1980s, you know, with the Renault plant in Kenosha. He's like, we have to salvage. And he, yeah. he's pretty honest in the book. He's like, this is going to be tough. This might be a losing battle, but we can still benefit workers as jobs are outsourced we can still help people even if in the long run it's not going to look good right yeah and there's a difference between i think like again like the conservative nature and then actually having you know understanding it through a wider political lens is like i think helpful because it's not it's not so reductive as this is mine you get yours you know what i mean like that and which is becomes a huge problem like you know this is what marx talks about with like the labor aristocracy and things like that you know this is a class of people who are sort of elevated above in a lot of cases with the like legacy unions and stuff so it's i think it is probably a benefit of having a union start without the giant bureaucracy already hanging over it you know whereas like afl-cio president like richard trumka like his son is the guy who made the gas stoves comment <laughs> he weighed in on the gas stove controversy he was the guy who started the gas stove controversy oh yeah because he's in char- i forget what he's in charge of but whatever department he's in charge of is like oh well it, it contributes to kids asthma and like that was him it was richard trumka jr one day i'll do an archaeology of that whole uh, <laughs> tempest in a teacup man yeah it's not that entertaining <laughs> it was like um Having a gas stove is like twelve percent more likely to like your kid is twelve percent more likely to have like child autism or, or asthma. Wow, I was way off. Oh wow, Childhood we're gonna start a yeah. it's vaccine. Like the vax truth. They're putting vaccines in the gas. Putting vaccines in the gas. Well, it's funny because like most like red states don't even have gas. Like you know, like um, right. Mm-hmm. Florida sure as fuck doesn't. I don't think there's. I don't think there's a law in Florida where you can't have gas. Everyone has electric unless you have like a there's no gas lines. There's no gas infrastructure. There's gas infrastructure here because all the lights were gas. You know what I mean? Like, oh, is that why? That's why the East Coast is like that, because there was a huge infrastructure for gas lighting. So there was already gas pipes to like every home and things like that, you know? Oh, wow. And huh. like, yeah, in the like southern states in the West and stuff like that, you didn't need, you know, you didn't have the use for it by the time you like actually lit those places up. So yeah, you didn't have like those gas lamps of like New York City or Boston or something like that. It's an East I'm Coast we, elite thing. <laughs> I'm glad we talked about this on the outro to John and yeah. Tyler. <laughs> well, look, they can come take my gas stove from my cold dead hands. <laughs> and also they're not coming to take it. But yeah, it's, it. well, it's funny because like we talk about how little there is to be offered, right? Like this is, 
the right wing party now supposedly under like uh you know gates and those types of shitheads is supposedly like all oh, this blue collar you know you got steven crowder out here crying about like a 50 million dollar contract being like i'm just a regular guy like you i don't want anybody being a wage slave for the daily caller yeah he, he compared like, it to slavery yeah yeah like <laughs> shut the hell like, yeah he played the he played the clip of like the wage slave clip of, you know this recorded conversation with uh the other founder of jeremy boring of daily wire you know and it's like it's funny because like that it, it sucks too but at the same time it's funny because like those that's who's you saw republicans here using like a raised fist drawing in their like signs oh. during the midterms and stuff like it's very weird to see but it's also so fake like you know the you can't kill an alive baby law passed the other week or whatever and it's like the Starbucks branding. I mean, like the Starbucks <laughs> yeah. has to brand itself as progressive values, environmentally friendly, um, sensitive towards the post third world. <laughs> yeah, it definitely ties in like the way it's become so much more complicated. But the thing is, is that I suppose like the state has like kind of pushed all its responsibilities off onto capital. But in turn, like capital has made itself essentially like a state apparatus where like it's all contracted out but there's still like the surveillance wing there's still the security wing there's still like the bureaucratic wing and logistical wing like they're all the same functions of you know i think that's like um the people's republic of walmart's a pretty good book like in making this case where it's like there is like this whole internal infrastructure system that is an unregulated state essentially it regulates itself and because of like the logic of the market and this being in the monopoly like they're allowed to do so you know and that's what I found interesting about talking to them. It's like, the, again, the like fleeting nature of capital and unions, the fact that it can just jump around or avoid certain regions and things like that is pretty wild, man. I don't know. We got the right to work. You got right to work? Are you allowed to uh, work? Yeah, it came in recently. It's funny. There was an attempt in the 1970s to get right to work, and we don't have to get into this. In Oklahoma in the 1970s, it fell, but they got it in the 2000s, which I thought was funny because they they almost could have done it in the 70s, but yeah. Well, we got it. We had a weird like trickery played with ours. Um, oh, there was a vote on like collective bargaining first. So for the vote on collective bargaining rights, they had the cops come out and do all the commercials and stuff like that to be like, get rid of collective bargaining. But it's in the Michigan State Constitution that they get to keep collective bargaining no matter what. So, I need to check the Oklahoma Constitution to see if yeah. it says anything about that. Yeah. Michigan, like, police and corrections officers get to keep their rights to collective bargaining no matter what, like, right to oh, work law passed. Just the police, not yep. wider labor. Not, like, any, like, okay. public se- other public sector or anything. It's literally, like, this. the security forces are written into having protection from, from the Constitution for collective bargaining. Hmm. But, I mean, that's the case anywhere, whether you have collective bargaining or not. How overpowered is, like, the only effective union in the country that has like the kill shot, the FOP, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like um, state constitutions, like the Oklahoma state constitution says that the state has to provide education and people are trying to interpret it to say no school choice keep to public because it's yeah. constitutional. That's the argument you know, go on now. But. Yeah. We have a, we have a strange one because it's essentially like the U S constitution with like certain infrastructure and like education provisions written written in because this is like the first place outside of new england where like um there's public schooling at any scale like the university of michigan's founded in like 
initially like it's founded in detroit in like the 1700 like late 1700 or something like that so that's like the public university coming into being it didn't actually get built out in ann arbor until like you know a couple decades later but the thing is like that the public university and like a public schooling system and like a trade school system kind of all and staff colleges they kind of all existed here in like one way or another in like a sort of proto form which is really interesting because we're all stupid as hell now like we, also, we also abolished the death penalty at first out of any state but there's more people calling for it to come back now than ever of, of course mm. you know to get hillary clinton <laughs> but no yeah this was great man this is a good talk and i, I definitely want to have him back at some point because I, I don't know there's a lot i can go over honestly and there's a lot i want to hear about the 80s and shit too oh yeah and a, a book kind of ends 1985 and he doesn't get he has like maybe two three four pages about his time as an immigration lawyer and he does some pretty big stuff there but the book doesn't cover that it stops with the labor stuff yeah and he has he does stuff uh with the philippines it's like i get towards the end of this book is like oh wow we aren't even going to cover the immigration lawyer uh lawyer stuff it's like wow yeah yeah, it's funny. It's funny too. They brings up like printed media and stuff like that. Because I was with like the only Marxist party in the state or like in the country, I think that still had like besides the Sparses that still had a printed like newspaper and stuff like that. So it's that's the it's thing about seeing this, that transition. Yeah, reading this book, it's like um, there's tangents. Like I start reading um, the uh, it's, it's called Fight Time, right? This is embarrassing. This whole book is named after the the the, the union publication. Fighting I start looking for. You can find in it these online. times. In these. Oh no times. no the, the his his union publication. No no the, yeah the, in so fighting times that's what he said. Yeah yeah yes. so I you can find editions online and then just like oh I got to finish reading this book because <laughs> then I'm reading you know all these publications connected there you know? yeah yeah but you're right like there it's there is like a sort of blossoming of like labor organization history going on. So I guess you did pick the right time to get your degree at least because there is an interest in it. You know what I mean? And I think there's a lot, I even just like, really this conversation was really like interesting to me because like they did like show me like there is a lot to be learned here. Cause there really are historical parallels that like hadn't kicked loose in my head until I talked to someone about it like that. You know what I mean? I wanted to ask two questions about the Starbucks. Um, workplace uh that popped up when tyler was talking about one are stop do starbucks store managers flip very often or do they never flip and then two um john was talking about the uh time uh time study analyst on the factory floor the old slide rule guy yeah version yeah yeah who's the slide rule guy um, I, guy, yeah. <laughs> I think that would be like in the, the vein of technology though you know that's yeah. like uh john was talking about with amazon where like you make sure you can't come in contact you switch your workplaces every other day or whatever you know like that kind of stuff is it seems pretty effective because again like there is no society you know there is no community like that all has to be smashed and it, and you like you said um like you brought up in your you know kind of your closing question there i'm like are you fighting to have a personal life essentially it's like <laughs> yeah kind of because the way it is now like yeah that it's you work three jobs or just work one full-time to an inhuman extent or if you're in a unionized workplace watch them cut the labor and try and demand out of you you know try and demand like work speed ups out of you like john talked about 
you know, or make things more inconvenient for you, like Starbucks is doing to the fucking union unionized stores, you know? It's definitely like there. It's just the slide rule guy is a different guy now. He's just a dork in like a cubicle. You He's know? an ergonomics guy. You don't see him. Yeah, it's Mayor Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere there's a Mayor Pete being the slide rule guy from a fucking desktop, you know? It sucks. It's even worse now. It's like you get Mayor Pete is the new slide rule guy, and the new guy whipping pennies at you is fucking Elon Musk. I'd rather have the guy whipping pennies. I hate life.